Hey guys, if you have your Bible, find the last book in it, Revelation chapter 2. We're still in this first section of the book of Revelation, which covers the first three chapters of the book. A reminder that these first three chapters, this first section, is dominated by uh, seven letters written from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven different churches of Asia Minor, but intended, as we've said a number of times, intended each one of them and all of them together to be relevant and, 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 and applicable for all churches of all time. So it's not as if Christ was merely addressing, for example, this morning the church in Thyatira, but he's addressing us through them. And again, we're like I just sort of said... Um, we're on the fourth of these letters. We've already looked at the church, his letter to the church in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, which means today we're going to look at this, third, this fourth letter to the church in Thyatira, which we begin in verse 18, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Uh, next Sunday, by the way, uh, just to give you a heads up, um, Brother Al, Dr. Al Jackson, will be the Sunday school teacher in here, so you don't want to miss that. That'll be good. And then, like Sophie said, two Sundays from today, we'll commence our missions festival, hence the flags and the pictures, etc. Let me just say, I said it on Wednesday night, I, I do believe, um, if your schedule permits, be present for as much of the missions festival as you can. It starts on Sunday, it's all day Sunday, and it, it's, it's breakfast, I mean, excuse me, there's a breakfast for men on Monday morning, but it's lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Um, you will not regret, regret a moment that you're here. But back to today. We're going to look uh, at this letter that the Lord Jesus addressed to us through, through his words to the ancient church in Thyatira. The situations um, that were at this point in the, in the section, the situations that we're going to find in these letters... Um, they are very similar. Uh, so what we're going to find here in Thyatira is not a lot different than what we found in Pergamum. Um, but so we're, we're going to, there's still some good things for us to see. And what, instead of diving into every little detail of this letter, for those of you who've already been here for the other letters, I, I want to take some things from this letter and, and make it more just exhortation to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the structure of this letter is just like all the others. Jesus introduces himself in a very significant way. You always, when you're reading these letters, pay attention to how Jesus introduces himself to the church. It's always very pertinent to what he's about to say, and it's never the same twice. Uh, and then he commends the church for things that they are doing right and should continue doing. And then he gets down to business in most letters, not all of them, all but two, and tells them what they're doing wrong. And not just mistakes or shortcomings, but very often sins that they are persisting in. And just to be thorough and clear, notice that in every letter, Jesus doesn't just say, here's what's wrong. In every letter, he says, in those all but two, he says, but I have this against you. And he personally has it against them as a church, which carries with it consequences um, if they don't repent. So in the letters, after he makes their sins known to them, he follows it up with a command to repent. But notice that even in that, even in his harshest words, I have this against you, therefore repent. Even in his harshest words and harshest threats against them, he has a redemptive opportunity in them. 
if they repent, regardless of the seriousness of their offenses against the Lord, he describes to them at the end of the letters the blessing they will receive from him instead of his judgment. Um, yeah, so the, the, the situations vary slightly, but, but you have the same elements in them. He introduces, praises, rebukes, uh, calls them to repent, and promises blessing if they do. We'll see that pretty clearly when we read it in just a second. To say one more thing to set the stage before we dive in. Um, if you wanted to summarize these churches in any way, we saw that uh, you could summarize the church at Ephesus as a church without love. As he told them, you had, you've abandoned the love that you have at first. Uh, I would say that Smyrna was commendably, you might say, a church without compromise. He found no fault in them or didn't address any fault in them. Pergamum, which we saw last week, was a church without conviction. Uh, and if I had to summarize Thyatira in, the, in some way, I would say it could be described as a church without accountability. A church without accountability. A church filled with people who didn't feel, even though he had some things that he committed them for. It was a church filled, with, at least with some people, who didn't feel like they were answerable in any way, either to each other or to the Lord, for their actions or for their inactions. Um, we saw this. This is practically identical to what we saw with the church in Pergamum. Um, but we'll think carefully about how it's presented to us here. So if you're open up to that passage, which I assume you are by now, let's dive in. Let's read it first, and then I'll say how I want us to address it. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you as your works deserve. Harsh, strong. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any on, any of, on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over, nations, over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray that as we come to it now for the next few minutes, that you would give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see. 
in these words from the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you give us minds to understand what he says here and what you would have us to understand? Would you give us hearts to embrace and love the truth? Would you give us wills to obey what he exhorts us to do here? Give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. I really wanted to leave you time around your tables this morning looking at the time. I don't know if it's going to happen, but there are just three questions, three questions that I want to try to answer from this, this uh, letter. Here they are. What is the Lord like? Question one, what is the Lord like? At least as he is presented here. Question two, what does he love? What is the Lord like? What does he love? Three, what does he hate? These letters tend to get down to the most fundamental issues, and we see that here. I, I, I can't think of any more important questions than those. What is the Lord like? What does he love? What does he hate? You tell me a more important question than any of those. And uh, we may not say something about every detail of this letter. In fact, I know we won't, um, but we'll, we'll note these main ideas. And the first question we want to try to answer from the passage is, what is the Lord like? Uh, this, this hopefully, by the way, these three, threefold questions in some way, at least the fact that this is the first one, what is the Lord like? If you've been here for any length of time, it ought not be surprising to any of you. That's the question you should ask of any passage in the Bible. When you open it up to read in your daily Bible reading, or you sit in here or in the sanctuary with your gathered church and you hear it, Preach to you with the words sitting open in your lap. Any passage you come to, the first question you ought to ask of it is, what does this teach me about God? What is He like? Um, it's, not, it's not, what does this passage tell me to do? But what does it teach me about the Lord? If you get that square first, you'll have a much fuller understanding by the time you get to the what does it teach me to do pass, uh, question. But this passage, like all the other letters, begins with the Lord Jesus actually telling us who He is and actually describing Himself in very vivid and significant ways, ways that if you've been here since the beginning, you might recognize these uh, from descriptions that were already given of Him in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. But looking at verse 18 again, look at uh, how He describes Himself again. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Every phrase of that is important. Every phrase of that is significant. He first refers to himself as the Son of God, which is a title, by the way, of his deity. There are several titles of deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Obviously, Lord, he is called God, but even when he calls himself the Son of God, or even the Son of Man. All of those are titles of deity. Um, and Son of God is a title of His deity and his, of His lordship. This was always, even among the pagans of that day, understood to be a title of deity. We see it in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 3, for example, when, when uh, there was a fourth figure walking around in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, they, and even... Pagan Nebuchadnezzar said, the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Clearly, it was a theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already seen in earlier letters that in, in the days of the Romans, 
Um, the, 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 the Romans always referred to Caesar as the son of the gods. And they, we've seen in other cities that temples were devoted to, to Caesar, that, that sacrifices were offered to Caesar, religious services and, and, and prayers were, were observed for Caesar and the Roman Empire. And we've already seen in other, like in Smyrna, we talked about the martyr Polycarp, how, how um, Christians felt oppressed who didn't feel like it was right to worship or offer sacrifice or say Caesar is Lord. They were oppressed for that. They, some of them, though, were tempted to go along with the flow, citing their freedom in Christ, as they would often say, just because they didn't want to suffer the consequences. That temptation's real. Well, here Jesus comes and he tells them that he is the Son of God. The Son of God. And believers there, if they had any knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, would have understood what he meant by that. Just, just think about some of the events from earlier in the life of Jesus Christ, which we find in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, for example, when the Jews heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God, Here's what we read in John 5, 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. How did they reason that way? How did they reason if he's the son of God, he is equal with God? He's saying he's God. How, how do they reason that way, that way? Well, if he's the Son of God, it means he has the same nature as God. Okay? And by very definition of God, just walk with, with, with me in the weeds for just a second. By the very definition of God, if, if, if the word name God means anything, by very definition, that means Jesus is both eternal, because the nature of God is eternal, um, and he is the same God. He's the same God, not a second God. He's the same one. Why? Because by the very definition of God, God is also infinite, and two infinite beings logically cannot exist. There's just one, right? So ponder that and ask me later if you need to. So anyway... Jesus comes to them, to this church in Thyatira, and, and he reminds them first of his deity, of, of his lordship, of, of his sovereign rule and reign over all things, over them, over Caesar himself. Caesar himself took that title, but for him it was simply a mirage. What are we to do? What are we to do then, if we've already seen this is what he's like, what are we to do then with this, this self-description from the Lord Jesus? What did God the Father say after, after John the uh, Baptist baptized him in Mark 9, 7? He said, from the heavens, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So for, for them, for us, when Jesus comes to us, he came to them and through them coming to us, and tells us, reminds us that he is the son of God, our first job is to listen to what he has to say. And even more imperatively, in light of how else he describes himself, which is how. Look again at verse 18. The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. He already described himself in chapter 1, verse 14 that way. 
has eyes like a flame of fire, which means what? I think it makes, he makes it clear what that means later in this very letter. When he says in verse 23, he describes himself there as, he, I am he who searches mind and heart. Even during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus demonstrated again and again his ability to know the thoughts and the feelings of other people. Let's give you a cursory sample of that. Just in Luke's gospel. Luke might be the clearest example of this. Uh, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 4.41, Jesus is identified as the Son of God. And then after, we've already talked about the significance of that, over and over again, right after that, here's the th- kind of things you read. 4.41, Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke 5.22, Jesus perceived their thoughts. Luke 6.8, he knew their thoughts. Luke, Luke 7.40, Jesus answered a man, answered a man who didn't say anything. He just thought something. In Luke 9, 47, Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Luke eleven seventeen, Jesus knowing their thoughts. You get the point. I believe when, when Jesus describes himself to this church in Thyatira and by extension to us as having eyes like a flame of fire, he is saying he sees everything. And not just what we do but what we think in our minds and what we feel in our hearts. He knows everything about us. And not only that, but again in verse 18, he describes himself as one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, saw that in chapter 1, verse 15. What does that mean here? I, too, think it's described for us again in verse 23. After he says he's the one who searches mind and heart, he follows it up with this. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve he is a judge so the eyes like a flame of fire show us and the feet of burnished bronze show us that not only does he see and know all things about us but he is also the righteous and sovereign judge of all things including those who profess to be his people so he presents himself here as God himself all seeing all knowing and as judge over all the exhortation I say we take away from that is, do we really believe that? I think if Jesus was identifying himself in this way to that ancient church, I think the question he wants them to ask is, do we really believe that? Do we view Jesus in this way? What a friend we have in Jesus is absolutely true. For those who have repented and believed. But we need to have room in our view of him for this description because he's telling us, he's telling the church this is what he's like. If you're not one who has repented and believed, this vision of Jesus should for sure sober you. Such that if you don't believe and repent, you're betting eternity on it. And if you're one who has repented and believed, this vision of Jesus should sober you and me as well. So that we do what? We would fear Him in such a way that, as the proverb said, it is the beginning of wisdom in us. It's the beginning of wisdom that motivates us to aim and to please Him in all that we do for His glory and also, by the way, for our joy and our good. And if that's where we are, We need to listen carefully to the next two points in our passage. The first being, what does the Lord love? 
when the Lord looks at a church, when he looks at our college ministry, when he looks at our church, parents in the room, the churches from whence you came, your church is there. What does he like to see? What does he want to see? What does he commend? What does he want us to be doing? I think he gives us an answer to those questions in this letter. Look first at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That verse says a lot. This is what he loves about this church. This is what he's praising them for. And let's think, so let's think about it a little more closely. He says I, he knows their works. We've seen in other letters already, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. We've already seen, he says, I know your works. And that's a general, generic term, a blanket term, that he, as soon as he says it, he gets more specific. So I know your works. Which ones? Their, fa- their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. And note carefully that it wasn't just this, but it was also very specifically that your latter works exceed the first. Which means that not only did they display these things in themselves, but they were growing in all these things. I love how Pastor Brian talks about the local church is actually, he describes it as love university. That the local church, filled as it is with a bunch of broken sinners it it is when we come together and we live together uh, and we rub up against each other the wrong way sometimes it teaches us how to love it teaches us how to love each other Um, and uh, and 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 he says that he commends them for growing in all these things growing in love love for if we if we carry the definition of love from Ephesus over to Thyatira presume it means love for Christ love for each other Love for the lost, growing in that, growing in faith in Christ, growing in service for Christ, service to each other, and growing more steadfast in patient endurance in hardship. These are the things that the Lord desires in a church. He tells us it is. In the final analysis, nothing else is worth His commendation. If we do this or that, how many people we have, how new the building is, whatever else you want to value is of no value. What he wants to see is, do you love him? Do you love each other? Do you love the lost? Do you believe his word? Do you seek obediently to, 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 to obey his word? Are you eager to serve him, to serve each other? Are you willing even to suffer hardship for his sake and patiently endure it? How do we know? Because I just stated it in a rather strong way. I said, nothing else is commendable. Goodness. How do we know this is all that he wants in a church? Look down at verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. He doesn't lay on them, or by extension, on us, any other burden 
than to love Him and to love each other and to love the lost and to keep believing and keep growing in, the, in obedient faith and to serve each other humbly and, and, and keep enduring hardship patiently and all the specific applications of those things you might give. And he says in verse 25, hold fast to those things until I come. So those are things by which we need to measure our selves, our college ministry, our church, parents, your churches. What evidence can we point to personally, corporately? What evidence can we point to that we love Jesus in increasing measure? That we desire that, that we are pursuing that. What evidence can we point to that we genuinely love each other? And not just those who are just like us. That in our estimation are easy to love. Because they're just like us. Look just like us. Act just like us. Are we, for example, intentionally, are we intentionally trying to draw other people into our friendships and into our fellowships, especially people who don't seem to have as many connections as we have? What can we point to to show that we love the lost? Does it ever cross our minds to look for an opportunity, to pray for an opportunity, to bear witness to Christ? Are we helping each other grow in the faith? Are we helping each other bear up under hardship? These are the things that matter to Jesus. Everything else a church may do ought to establish us and help us do these things. But lastly, dare I say it? Will we have time? We need to take note also of what the Lord hates. We need to think just as carefully about that. Even as forgiven believers, he can still hate things we do. And really quickly, we need to see, see what he says in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It appears that whoever, whoever this was in the church um, referred to as Jezebel was a false teacher, since the emphasis here is on her teaching. She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Jezebel, by the way, I don't know that that was her real name, but Jezebel, obviously from the Old Testament, was the one who tempted King Ahab to be unfaithful to the Lord and through him all the people of Israel by worshiping the false god Baal, by committing acts of sexual immorality associated with the worship of Baal. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 1 Kings chapter 21. Was this person, what, what, what this person referred to as Jezebel here um, was tempting many in the church to do was not apparently really any different than what Jezebel of the Old Testament did. And, and, and that is in line with what we've already seen other people do in the other, other letters. Remember the Nicolaitans, what we said about them, or uh, those who followed the teaching of Balaam. We saw that. It's the same kind of compromise with the culture around them that they face, which is absolutely no different than what we still face. 
no different. We have our own false gods that we sacrifice to in our own ways. The false gods we're often tempted to sacrifice to, we, we offer the sacrifices of time and sacrifice of love. And sometimes obedience, which is sometimes sexual in nature. The Lord Jesus hates it as much today as he did then. And notice too here in this verse that the Lord passes judgment on the rest of the church who tolerates it. And turn a blind eye to the compromise that she is influencing. And that's why I say that this, could be, this church could be described as a church without accountability. Because they simply tolerated those who were in clear and obvious compromise and sin rather than trying to help them and warn them in love and hold them accountable. The Lord Jesus teaches us here that we are just as accountable for tolerating it, sin, as, as, as the others were for committing it. This is one of the main purposes of the church in the first place. Not, none of us, none of us, if we're honest, enjoy somebody coming to us and humbling out, humbly pointing out a, 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 a shortcoming in my life, a weakness in my life, a sin in my life, a wayward path I'm walking. Nobody enjoys that. If you, if you enjoy that, come find me. I'm, I'm going to meet you. But the Lord says we need that. We need it. Proverbs 15, 5 says, only a fool despises a father's discipline. Whoever learns from correction is wise. We live in such a hypersensitive, fearful of being labeled judgmental age that some of us cannot even imagine confronting somebody else, even if we knew it would help them eternally. You say, well, I, it's not my place. I'm a sinner too. Sure, repent of your sins and then go help them. And be honest about your sins. The Lord says if we don't hold each other accountable and, 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 and people persist in their sins unrepentantly, just fall away because nobody ever went after them, tolerated by the rest of them, the rest of us, He says He won't tolerate us. <laughs> I'm not, that's just what it says. He says very straightforwardly in verse 23, I will give to each of you as your works deserve. We don't and we can't earn our salvation by our works, but we can give evidence that we are born again by their works. Again, Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always produces obedience. And, this, and obedience to things like this. And the Lord reminds us of his long-suffering mercy when he says, even a, of Jezebel in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. The Lord gives all of us all the time we need to repent. This is not a, a, a first day of faith thing only. It's, it's an everyday of faith thing. Again, Martin Luther. Didn't intend to talk about Martin Luther twice in a row. Martin Luther said, when the Lord Jesus said repent, he meant that every day of a believer's life should be one of repentance. 
persevering isn't only persevering in obedience. Persevering is also persevering in quick repentance when we fail. Helping others to do that. Others helping us to do that. And Jesus holds out the promise of joy and eternal life to the church who perseveres in this kind of faithfulness in verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers, who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. We will rule with Rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. More on that as we get deeper into the book. But he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't have time to talk around our tables. Sorry. Here's, here's what I would have had you talk about, I promise. I wanted you to talk around your tables about this image of Jesus at the beginning of this letter and, and compare that to your, the way you often think about Jesus. Does it? Do you often think about him in these ways? And also, also talk about how, how do you hold people accountable and how do you receive being held accountable by other people? That's, that's what we would have talked about. Your parents are in town. Y'all could talk about it over family lunch. How about that? That's great. Um, let's pray, and then we're done. Lord, thank you so much for um, your word to us. Thank you even for, like, strong words to us. The strong words like this make the comfortable words even more precious to us. Help us to be obedient. Uh, Lord, it starts with knowing this about you. Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to have this sober. This is not the whole, this is not all that there is to know of you, Lord Jesus, that you have eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. This is not the whole of everything, all-knowing, all-sovereign judge. The song is true. What a friend we have in Jesus. But help us not neglect or ever pit those two things against each other. And help us to uh, pursue the things that you commend here. Love and faith and service and patiently enduring in these things. And help us to accomplish those things um, through loving and humble accountability that we give to each other in the context of this, your church. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.